Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Pastor Dusty. I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune. We're both from Cormdale Church, and every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today we're talking about when a prominent atheist becomes a Christian. Chris Hellman is assessing some new church planters. That's why he's not with us today. I'm glad he's, he's doing that. He's raising up leaders for the future of the kingdom of God. Good work, Chris Hellman. That's good. Um, hey, we have snacks today, Dusty. You didn't mention that. I didn't, um, but we do. Finally. Yeah, provided by listener Sarah. Uh, these are homemade caramels. They're good. And uh, I had to read the read the bag. Sweet and spicy mixed nuts. This kind of, We're kind of getting into like Thanksgiving and Christmas kinds of snacks. Got a little bit of salt, a little bit of sweet. Yeah, these are delicious. I have a confession to make, Dusty. Do you notice how there's no, <laughs> you notice how there's no salted caramels? I do see that. It's because she dropped these off on Monday. Mm. And if I'm going to be honest, I've, yeah. I've been eating them since Monday. It's the Wednesday confession conversation. Yeah. I've been, I've had probably eight of these salted caramels. Okay. Hey, okay. I, I do want to say. I'm going to need you to calm down on that. I do want to say some other people on our team have also been eating them. Because I put them in the staff kitchen, and they've been disappearing. So this is a rebuke to the entire Cormdale staff team. These snacks were clearly labeled Wednesday conversation <laughs> snacks. You turned a confession into a rebuke. And yet people have been eating them. It's unbelievable. One of the things we like to do on this podcast is just pay attention to things going on in the culture. Obviously, um, as Christians, we are always trying to minister the gospel in a cultural environment, and that cultural environment is constantly changing. And so we want to pay attention to the sort of things that are happening in the world around us. In the past few months, one of the things that's gotten a lot of attention is the Hamas terror attacks in Israel and uh, all that that has brought into reality since October. And just a couple of weeks ago, a major development took place um, in sort of the the world of intellectual uh, thought leaders. And that is that um, a prominent atheist has announced that she has become a Christian. And so on this podcast, we want to talk about that. Um, She wrote an essay, sort of a coming out essay of why she has now become a Christian. Um, Speaking of Ayan Hirsi Ali, some of you will be familiar with her. Some of you have never heard of her before. Uh, If you're uh, attending though to sort of um, cultural dialogue, if you sort of pay attention to people who uh, talk about things going on in the culture. Ayan Hirsi may be familiar to you because she has been a, a vocal critic of Islam ever since uh, 2001, since the sort of 9-11 attacks. In fact, she was at that time living in uh, the Netherlands, I believe, and moved to the U.S. later on. And uh, she has an amazing story. But she wrote an article in, it was originally in Unheard, and then was reposted at the Free Press. I'm looking at the Free Press version, which is dated November 14th, 2023. And she announces in this article that she has now become a Christian. So this is a person who was, early in her life, a devout Muslim. Then, after the 9-11 attacks, became an atheist. And now, in 2023, says she has become a Christian. Yeah. And I want to... Um, it's quite the story. Yeah, I want to... That doesn't happen every day. Well, and here's what's interesting about that. I was listening to... There's a really great new podcast. And by the way, since you're listening to this podcast, you're the kind of a person who might like listening to podcasts. 
There's a really interesting new podcast that's just come out by Justin Brierly, who's uh, a British guy who's been doing really amazing YouTube interviews for about 15 years. He does these debates between atheists and Christians. He does really interesting YouTube stuff. The podcast is called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. And what he is tracing in this podcast is that there's there's a surprising rebirth of belief in God. And one of the, I've listened to a few episodes, and one of the things he does in that podcast is he takes us back to 9-11 and says, actually, the 9-11 attacks were sort of the beginning of the new atheism. Mm. Because what everybody realized on 9-11 was that these attacks were religiously motivated. Sure. The, the, the terrorists were explicit about yeah. the fact that they were religiously motivated. And so... In the wake of 9-11, a lot of people felt like, well, hey, you know what creates conflict and terror and death in the world is competing religious perspectives. And so the answer to that is atheism. And so that's when you had, you know, you st- none of those guys were new. Richard Dawkins wasn't new. Daniel Dennett wasn't new. Christopher Hitchens wasn't new. But suddenly, in the years between 2001 and about 2012, those became huge figures in the public mind. They all wrote New York Times bestselling books. They were doing speaking tours. In fact, on the podcast, Justin Brierly has audio from this march on Washington in 2012 that was called like the Reason Gathering or something. And it was, you know, 30,000 atheists and freethinkers gathering in Washington, D.C. in sort of this big rally. And so Ayan Hirsi Ali was sort of part of that movement. She was one of the new atheists and she had a unique kind of critique because she had grown up as a convictional Muslim. And I'm going to read, she, she sort of narrates her story in this article. And by the way, the intro to the article at the Free Press says this, one of the biggest stories of the past few days didn't happen in Washington or Gaza or Tehran, but was an invisible change that happened inside the heart and mind of one woman, Ayan Hirsi Ali. Ayan is many things. She is a refugee from Somalia where she was the victim of female genital mutilation. She was a Dutch politician whose criticism of Islam led to death threats. Theo van Gogh, her collaborator on Submission, a film about Islam, was murdered in the streets of Amsterdam. The killer left a note stabbed into his body, warning that Ayan would be next. A normal person would have shut up, but Ayan is not normal. She wrote a memoir, Infidel. She became a mother. She became an American, and she never, ever quieted her voice. It's for all these reasons and many more that Ayana is one of the great heroes of our time. She has also been, since the early 2000s, among the most prominent atheists in the world. Or at least she was until late last week, when she announced in the pages of Unheard that she has converted to Christianity. One of the great things about that intro is that's only on page 2 of 11 for me, and it just makes you keep reading. Yeah. It's well written. The story's compelling. The intro goes on to say the Egyptian intellectual Hussein Abukar Mansour wrote in reaction to the news that, quote, Ayan Hirsi Ali's announcement of embracing Christianity is one of the biggest pivotal moments culturally since 9-11, and I don't know how many people actually realize that. Ayan Hirsi Ali was the poster child of what the new atheists promised Islam. Not just is she saying that she's not certain about that promise anymore, she is saying she isn't even certain about the promise of the future the new atheists could afford themselves. And so I'm going to read to you from Ayan Hirsi Ali's article. You will post an article in the show notes to this podcast, but I'm going to read um, from sections of it. And you're going to see, you know, she's narrating. So at the end, she's going to get to why she's a Christian. On the way there, she's going to talk about some of the 
journey that she's been on in, in sort of her intellectual development. What you're going to see at the end, if you're a convictional Christian, you're going to be like, ah, it's good, but not great. Like she's not talking <laughs> about like repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus. She's talking more about becoming convinced that Christianity is sort of the only foundation for Western civilization. Yeah. And so what I think is interesting about that is it, it might not have sort of the um, personal conversion language that we would look for and hope for, but it is clear that she is on a journey. And she mentions in the last paragraph, which I'll get to, that she's going to church weekly. And so, you know, she is clearly turning a corner yeah. in pursuit of Christianity and in pursuit of Christ. She's basically saying Christianity must be what we need. Yeah. So let me read to you, and I'm just going to invite you as a listener to listen along and hear this story. And again, what I think is particularly compelling about this is that this is a person who 10 or 15 years ago would have been aggressively saying, yeah, atheism is the way. Christianity has nothing to offer the West. Christianity is part of the problem. And uh, she has decisively changed her tune. Here's from the middle of the article. To understand why I became an atheist 20 years ago, you first need to understand the kind of Muslim I had been. I was a teenager when the Muslim Brotherhood penetrated my community in Nairobi, Kenya in 1985. I don't think I had even understood religious practice, practice before the coming of the Brotherhood. I had endured the rituals of ablutions, prayers, and fasting as tedious and pointless. The preachers of the Muslim Brotherhood changed this. They articulated a direction, the straight path, a purpose to work toward admission into Allah's paradise after death. A method, the prophet's instruction manual of do's and don'ts, the halal and the haram. As a detailed supplement to the Quran, the hadith spelled out how to put into practice the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, God and the devil. The brotherhood preachers left nothing to the imagination. They gave us a choice. Strive to live by the prophet's manual and reap the glorious rewards in the hereafter? On this earth, meanwhile, the greatest achievement possible was to die as a martyr for the sake of Allah. The most striking quality of the Muslim Brotherhood was their ability to transform me and my fellow teenagers from passive believers into activists almost overnight. We didn't just say things or pray for things, we did things. As girls, we donned the burqa and swore off Western fashion and makeup. The boys cultivated their facial hair to the greatest extent possible. We operated in groups and volunteered our services in charity to the poor, the old, the disabled, and the weak. We urged fellow Muslims to pray and demanded that non-Muslims convert to Islam. During Islamic study sessions, we shared with the preacher in charge of the session our worries. For instance, what should we do about the friends we loved and felt loyal to, but who refused to accept our dawah, our invitation to the faith? In response, we were reminded repeatedly about the clarity of the Prophet's instructions. We were told in no uncertain terms that we could not be loyal to Allah and Muhammad while also maintaining friendships and loyalty toward the unbelievers. If they explicitly rejected our summons to Islam, we were to hate and curse them. Here, a special hatred was reserved for one subset of unbeliever, the Jew. We cursed the Jews multiple times a day and expressed horror, disgust, and anger at the litany of offenses he had allegedly committed. The Jew had betrayed our prophet. He had occupied the Holy Mosque in Jerusalem. He continued to spread corruption of the heart, mind, and soul. 
You can see why, to someone who had been through such a religious schooling, atheism seemed so appealing. Bertrand Russell, that's a famous atheist writer, offered a simple, zero-cost escape from an unbearable life of self-denial and harassment of other people. For him, there was no credible case for the existence of God. Religion, Russell argued, was rooted in fear. Quote, Fear is the basis of the whole thing. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. End quote. As an atheist, I thought I would lose that fear. I also found an entirely new circle of friends, as different from the preachers of the Muslim Brotherhood as one could imagine. The more time I spent with them, people such as Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, the more confident I felt that I had made the right choice, for the atheists were clever. They were also a great deal of fun. So, that's true. Atheists are clever. (laughs) They They are. And you can see what she's saying is like, hey, she was in this very rigid form of Islam that was... Dusty, if I loved you and I came to you and said, hey, you need to convert to Islam and you told me I don't want to, now I'm supposed to hate you and curse you. Right. And so it creates this very polarized and binary you know, reality where I either have to be calling you to faith or hating you. And she's like, that's very stressful and strenuous on the soul and on the mind. And so after that, the idea that atheism is just like, hey, you know what? You don't have to convert anyone. Religion is rooted in fear. You're just free to believe in nothing. She felt like that was a breath of fresh air coming out of um, an Islamic background. And by the way, what I like about Ayan Hirsi Ali is that one of the things she has said very directly and repeatedly is that Western people have a tendency to want to believe that you can separate the religion of Islam from the politics of Islam. And so she's, she's said a lot, you know, Western, because we live in a liberal democracy— we want to think, well, not, a, you know, not every Muslim person is a terrorist and, and not all Islamists are radicals. And we can separate like a sort of like secularized liberal version of Islam from the more political sort of activist version of Islam. And she says, actually, you can't do that. Like the, the reason that all the Islamic countries in the world where Islam is the official religion are also very militant and very oppressive to religious freedom is because they're meant to be. And so she has, to people in the West who sort of were like, well, the 9-11 thing, you know, that's not true Islam. She's kind of been like, no, actually, that's, that's Islam to its full yeah, degree, you know. all the way. And um, so she has been really critical of people who have tried to sort of use uh, liberal politics or sort of democracy as a way of sort of saying, hey, she's basically saying, hey, if, an, if a Muslim says they want to kill you for religious reason, you should believe them. That's what they mean. <laughs> You shouldn't be like, well, they didn't mean it was religious. And we don't understand that because of our church and state. Right. Yeah. And because we live in a heritage of Western democracy, which has been shaped by Christianity. And the the primary difference between Christianity and Islam is Christianity is is a persuasive religion, not a coercive one. Islam, as she says, is you're to issue the call to become Muslim, but if you don't embrace that call, then I'm, I'm to hate you. And I become a better Muslim by hating you. Right. And so Christianity, on the contrast, or on the contrary, is, you know, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so if I, I'm supposed to call you to faith in Christ, but I have no, I'm not to hate you if you don't, I'm to continue loving you. And so there is a great difference between the persuasive power of Christianity and what it means to live in a culture that has been shaped by that worldview versus a culture that's been shaped by a coercive religion that believes you either believe this religion or you 
should be an outcast in our society. All right, so Ayan Hirsi Ali asks the question in the middle of the article, so then what changed? Why do I call myself a Christian now? Here's her answer. Part of the answer is global. Western civilization is under threat from three different but related forces. The resurgence of great power authoritarianism and expansionism in the forms of the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's Russia. The rise of global Islamism, which threatens to mobilize a vast population against the West. And the viral spread of woke ideology, which is eating into the moral fiber of the next generation. Okay, so notice the three, let's call time out. Notice the three threats that she sees to Western civilization. One is authoritarianism, especially that of the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's Russia. She's just saying like, hey, this is like old school, you know, Cold War kinds of stuff, like dominant expansionist powers who are trying to leverage their influence in the world. Second, Islamism, which threatens to mobilize a vast population against the West. That's what we're seeing with what's happened since Hamas. And you see these demonstrations in places like London and Sydney and Washington, D.C., where there's thousands and thousands of people chanting death to Israel. Yeah. And then she says the viral spread of woke ideology is the third threat. So, Which is interesting because the woke ideology is how we see those other ones as well. Well, there are three sort of related threats. And she says that all of these threaten Western civilization, right? If you have the territorial ambitions of China or Russia, you have the rise of global Islamism, and you have the spread of woke ideology, these things are all eroding or threatening Western civilization. She says, we can't fight off these formidable forces unless we can answer the question, what is it that unites us? The response that God is dead seems insufficient. So too does the attempt to find solace in the rules-based liberal international order. The only credible answer, I believe, lies in our desire to uphold the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. She's going to elaborate on what the legacy of the the Judeo-Christian tradition is in the next paragraph. But let me first notice the two things she says can't unite us. One, the response that God is dead. That was the new atheist proposal. If we just all get behind atheism, that's what can unite us. We need to abandon the idea of religious authority and instead just embrace a very practical, pragmatic atheism. And she's saying that can't unite us. What you're against can't bring unity. Right. And second, she knocks on the attempt to find solace in the rules-based liberal international order. That's kind of like your classic Obama, you know, Clinton foundation kind of thing of just like, hey, you know what? more democracy, liberal liberal rules-based international order. Let's just export democracy to the world. If we can just all agree that we should all be liberal democratic societies, that's the answer. And she, she's like, the, that doesn't seem to be creating a deep cultural unity. So she says, the only credible answer lies in our desire to uphold the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. What does she mean by that? She goes on to explain. That legacy consists of an elaborate set of ideas and institutions designed to safeguard human life, freedom, and dignity, from the nation-state and the rule of law to the institutions of science, health, and learning. As Tom Holland has shown in his marvelous book, Dominion, all sorts of apparently secular freedoms of the market, of conscience, and of the press 
find their roots in Christianity. Dusty, I think it's really interesting that she mentions Tom Holland in his book, Dominion, because I have heard a number of people mention that book as uniquely helpful for them because what Tom Holland does is says all the things you take for granted as, as a Westerner, things like hospitals or universities or the rise of empirical science, these things all have their roots in Christianity. Yeah. And we have bought into the idea that like, Oh, we can get rid of Christianity and still keep these things. But he's like, actually you wouldn't have these things apart. You know, Tom Holland's whole book, his whole argument in dominion is the Roman world didn't have these things. The, the barbaric, you know, the, the tribes of Europe didn't have these things. The Vikings didn't have these things didn't come from any of our original societies. They came from Christianity transforming those societies. And that's, by the way, if you're looking, uh, if you haven't read Tom Holland's book, I would recommend it. Two other books that I've read recently that sort of make the same case are Glenn Scrivener's book, The Air We Breathe, and then the brand new Andrew Wilson book, Remaking the World. All of those authors are essentially working the same ground, which is to say all the things you take for granted as values in Western culture come from Christianity. And so what she's saying is, yeah, these, uh, these institutions that we take for granted that safeguard human life and freedom and dignity, these things all find their roots in Christianity. And so you can't get rid of Christianity and expect that those things are just going to stay there, just like you can't right. dig out the roots of a tree and expect the tree to remain standing. She goes on to mention, she's, she's mentioning Bertrand Russell a lot because she starts the article by kind of referencing this famous essay from Bertrand Russell called Why I'm Not a Christian, which I had to read in junior level philosophy mm. at the University of Oklahoma. It's a really interesting book and sort of a classic argument for, you know, atheism. But she points out, she goes on to write, Russell gave his lecture. That book is based on a lecture he gave. She says he gave his lecture in a room full of Christians in a Christian country. <laughs> Think about how unique that was nearly a century ago and how rare it still is in non-Western civilizations. Could a Muslim philosopher stand before any audience in a Muslim country, then or now, and deliver a lecture with the title, Why I Am Not a Muslim? In fact, a book with that title exists, written by an ex-Muslim, but the author published it in America under the pseudonym Ibn Warak. It would have been too dangerous to do otherwise. To me, this freedom of conscience and speech is perhaps the greatest benefit of Western civilization. It does not come naturally to man. It is the product of centuries of debate within Jewish and Christian communities. It was these debates that advanced science and reason, diminished cruelty, suppressed superstitions, and built institutions to order and protect life while guaranteeing freedom to as many people as possible. Unlike Islam, Christianity outgrew its dogmatic stage. It became increasingly clear that Christ's teaching implied not only a circumscribed role for religion as something separate from politics, it also implied compassion for the sinner and humility for the believer. Now, that's one place I might take issue with her is where she says Christianity outgrew its dogmatic stage. She's sort of saying like, yeah, it kind of became more chill and just decided to love your enemy. Like, actually, that's what Jesus always said. It's interesting, though, because it seems like it's actually the compassion of Christianity that has drawn her to this spot. Yes, I think you're right. It's also interesting that she says these 
freedoms of conscience and of speech are the product of centuries of debate within Jewish and Christian communities. Again, she's saying these things are the outgrowth of the kind of intellectual and moral reasoning that Judeo-Christian truth and heritage leads us to. And so that is very different from Islam. She goes on to write, I would not, yet I would not be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realization that atheism is too weak and divisive to fortify us against our menacing foes. I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace unendurable. Indeed, very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question. What is the meaning and purpose of life? There you have it. That's an amazing admission and an amazing question. And that changes everything for her. Because atheism, again, is, is defined by what I'm against. Yeah. And fails to answer the question, what's the meaning and purpose of life? She goes on to say, Russell and other activist atheists believed that with the rejection of God, we would enter an age of reason and intelligent humanism. But the void left by the retreat of the church has merely been filled by a jumble of irrational quasi-religious dogma. The result is a world where modern cults prey on the dislocated masses, offering them spurious reasons for being and action. The line often attributed to G.K. Chesterton has turned into a prophecy. When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They rather become capable of believing in anything. And so she says, In this nihilistic vacuum, the challenge before us becomes civilizational. We can't withstand Russia, China, and Iran if we can't explain to our populations why it matters that we do. We can't fight woke ideology if we can't defend the civilization that it is determined to destroy. And we can't counter Islamism with purely secular tools. The lesson I learned from my years with the Muslim Brotherhood was the power of a unifying story embedded in the foundational texts of Islam to attract, engage, and mobilize the Muslim masses. Unless we offer something as meaningful, I fear the erosion of our civilization will continue. And fortunately, there is no need to look for some new age concoction of medication and mindfulness. Christianity has it all. That is why I no longer consider myself a Muslim apostate, but a lapsed atheist. Of course, I still have a great deal to learn about Christianity. I discover a little more at church each Sunday. But I have recognized in my own long journey through a wilderness of fear and self-doubt that there is a better way to manage the challenges of existence than either Islam or unbelief had to offer. And that's the end of the article. It's compelling. It's fascinating that she is mentioning there that she's a lapsed atheist and that she's discovering a little more at church each Sunday. This is actually a really hopeful story for those of us who are planting churches and leading churches just to say, here's a person who you would have considered a great enemy to Christianity, someone who is sort of a convictional atheist. Now she's attending church and she's attending church acknowledging like, I got a lot to learn. 
I'm, I'm intrigued. I would call myself a Christian, but I don't really, I've got a lot to learn about Christianity. Which, which speaks to her humility. Yes. I think it's entire discovery, which is also beautiful. And I think the other thing that's interesting is here's a person like the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Here's a person who has lived deeply within a Muslim worldview and lived deeply within an atheist worldview and has come to the point where she has realized they don't offer compelling and satisfying answers to questions like, what is the meaning and purpose of life? Why are we here? Um, And also that, so she seems to be tapping into both a civilizational challenge, but also an existential one, right? She says, hey, I think the only way for Western civilization to withstand the onslaught of these forces is if we have Christianity at the heart of it. But also, existentially, I need meaning and purpose in life. I need a reason to live. And um, Christianity offers that in a deep and powerful way. So I want to encourage you, if you're a listener, you know, anytime a prominent atheist becomes a Christian, it's a significant moment. It's something we should celebrate and something that we should um, rejoice in, both the um, spiritual and intellectual resources of Christianity, because she's naming both. She's saying there's there's a soulish reality, a spiritual depth to it that I found compelling, but also intellectually, it ha- it answers life's deepest questions. And so I think it's meaningful and hopeful for Christians who care about what's going on in the culture just to acknowledge, hey, here's a person who used to be a prominent atheist, has now come out and said, hey, I've become a Christian, and that's something we should celebrate. Reading this story and just listening to it again here today these things solidify our faith. Like there's, it's very worshipful to just take it in. Yeah. And of course, you know, the debate around her will go on because she's very embedded in the atheist community. So there's already been some responses written and I'm sure there'll be like a good point counterpoint pushback to, you know, to this story. But um, here is a very prominent woman who has been a key activist for women's rights coming forward and saying, Hey, actually, the foundation for my life work is more Christian than I thought, more, yeah. more Christian than I gave it credit for, and I myself am now a Christian. So I think this is um, powerful, meaningful, and encouraging to those of us who follow Christ. And I hope you might go read her story. And if you don't follow Ayan Hersey, she's written some really good books you might find really interesting about both her own story and sort of about civilizational dynamics. Um, so you might just find her an interesting person to learn from, especially if you have uh, family members or friends who come from an Islamic background. Um, but even if you just sort of are interested in cultural uh, dialogue and cultural apologetics, she's an interesting person to to pay attention to because she's doing a lot of work um, in terms of Islam and its effects on culture and how we ought to relate to um things like immigration and things like foreign policy and so forth. And so I find her a compelling voice always, and I'm glad that she would now call herself a Christian. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you have snacks, you can send them because Bob ate all the caramels. (laughs) But also if you happen to be a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. And we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, future podcast topics, you can send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com.
Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. <laughs>